0: We are live in the Bergino Baseball Clubhouse at 67 East 11th Street in the landmark cast iron building, Greenwich Village, City of New York. We start tonight as we always do. To those of you who are here for the first time, welcome. To those who have been here before, welcome home. Tonight's book, Crack of the Bat, A History of Baseball on the Radio, the publisher of the University of Nebraska Press, the author James Walker. Please join me as we welcome Jim Walker to the clubhouse.
1: It's great to be here.
0: Thank you, and I actually want to thank you twice. Uh, First, I want to thank you for coming. Uh, I really appreciate when anybody comes, the authors, the people who are a knowledgeable crowd, whoever walks through the door, I always appreciate it, even if the author lives around the corner. But I really appreciate that you came from a little further away than around the corner so thank you so much for that it it means a lot and the other thing i want to thank you for is the book uh i consider myself somewhat knowledgeable not like you know i know like one percent of what lee Lowenfish knows but uh i this was i felt like i took a course in the history of baseball on the radio by reading this book it's it's really fantastic and extremely well researched and just fascinating to, to learn uh, these things
1: I hope it was one of those funny likable classes that you took <laughs> <have> in college <laughs>
0: yeah I didn't sleep through it, so that was good uh, for those of you who may not know James Walker is a professor emeritus and former chair of the department of communication at St. Xavier University he is also the co-author of Centerfield Shot a history of baseball on television and the broadcast television industry so uh, this book it seems to be broken down into three main areas. First, the formative years, 1920 to 1936. Next, the age of acceptance, 1937 to 1960. The television years, 1961 to present. And the the, the huge chunk of this, or maybe it's the most interesting to me, I'm not sure, but the, the formative years, 1920 to 1936. Yeah. So we may as well start at the beginning. So... Uh, I guess to get us going. So now it's 1920. Right. Radio is this emerging technology, and which I found fascinating. You have some own owners who were like, "Oh yeah, let's we got to be on the radio," and some owners, "Are you crazy? We're not going on the radio." Right.
1: I think it's it's fascinating in, in the in the modern world when new innovations come along in communication, whatever they may be. Uh, they're snapped up almost immediately Uh, and in fact there's very little resistance to them they're embraced very quickly once they become established everybody has to have a Facebook page everybody has to be on the web these things are just part of the routine for all businesses but for a very very long time um, baseball uh, saw radio as a threat and they had earlier seen the telegraph as a threat they had seen newspapers as a threat owners had always seen media as something that would give away the game would uh, give fans all the information that they needed or wanted and would discourage attendance and at this era attendance was the whole game there there were no rights these um, but the you know the owners split very very quickly uh, primarily between owners on the east Coast with New York really at the center of that um, the Boston area was an exception uh, and then the Midwest and They weren't um, mindless Luddites, the ones that were uh, against radio. They had reasons to believe that radio could possibly harm their gate. It was different than newspaper coverage. Newspaper coverage occurred after the game. Um, People could read more about the game, and fairly quickly they learned that this was good promotion, and they welcomed the writers. uh, Radio on the other hand gave the game out as it was happening. Uh, And so there was some suspicion. East Coast owners were really kind of locked in. Uh, they did; they were they, their markets kind of bumped into another market, and they didn't necessarily see bringing fans in from outside the immediate metropolitan area as a big part of their market. Right? Midwest was totally different. Uh, Chicago could draw fans from all over the Midwest. Detroit could draw all over Michigan, and so they saw fairly quickly that radio was actually bringing fans to the ballpark. And then, since most of the games were daytime, they were also Uh, bringing a new generation of fans um, to the game Uh, and, and also they were bringing women to the game and that was something that's always been seen as a priority because women were seen as one paying customers but they also were seen as people who would civilize the ballpark who would make the ballpark a more family oriented place uh, and, uh, let's say, keep the men a little under control. And, uh, and so that was important because there was a very, very rough period prior to this. So there was a real, real split, about half the owners on one side, about half the owners on the other side, and the real um, conflict uh, appeared in the uh, annual meetings, the American League meetings and the National League meetings. Uh, and during those um, meetings, the owners would debate, in fact, to the point where people would be saying in the, in the minutes of the meetings, Are we going to do the radio question again? Because they've been doing it for years and years and years, and they really wanted to. um, The owners really wanted to ban broadcasts because they were fearful not just that their broadcasts would discourage fans, but out-of-market broadcasts would discourage fans. And the St. Louis Browns uh, were concerned that White Sox broadcasts would hurt their market. Cardinals were concerned that Cubs broadcasts might harm their markets. So it was a battle that took place over almost 20 years, uh, from the early 1920s to 1939, when the New York market finally embraced baseball. And that's really when the regular season broadcasts become part of the New York culture.
0: And during this time, uh, Commissioner Landis, he kind of has his own powers separate with radio. Yeah. A little about that.
1: There's a big split between the World Series, which Landis controls with an iron fist, Owners are not going to be part of that. Landis decides what the radio policy is going to be. And early on, some of the owners really wanted him to not allow World Series broadcasts. But they were so popular immediately, starting in 1921, 1922, 1923, and the interest in them just soared throughout the 1920s. Graham McNamee became probably the first sports uh, broadcaster superstar because of the World Series coverage. Uh, other than heavyweight boxing the World Series was by far the most important thing on radio and the World Series was on for a week the fight was over in one night um, so Landis controlled that in the same respect he, even though he didn't think of himself doing this or we don't think of himself doing this he did serve at the beck and call of the owners and so he left the local rights he, he basically said well I'm not sure whether I'm going to be involved with that or not which is, was his way of saying I'm not going to be involved with that <laughs> uh and he left that decision to the leagues. The leagues debated it. the best they ever uh, got the anti-radio forces was a four4 uh vote in the american league uh, essentially a tie and that left the power in the owner in the owner's hands and the league decided not to have a radio policy. Uh, and when that decision was made gradually that the other teams began to embrace radio, And what's fascinating about the 1930s is that the teams that weren't on radio were being pushed by advertisers. General Mills in particular was forcing, they they brought out-of-market radio broadcasts into New York of Philadelphia and Boston games. They couldn't broadcast, they couldn't get the rights to do the local teams, but they brought out-of-market. And there was a substantial audience for these games, even though they weren't the local teams. Right, and that gradually began to co- convince the owners that were most resistant that we have a really valuable product here maybe we could begin charging for this and at one meeting um, the owner of the uh, New York Giants uh, told the other owners that he had turned down $100,000 for the radio rights to Giants games and about half the other owners just went you're kidding you turned that down. I mean, a hundred thousand dollars meant a lot of money in that, in that <laughs> era. This is the Great Depression, right? And yet, some of them were so resistant that they're turning. That. And I think when that information started to become widely, they started thinking, "Wait a second, we have actually a valuable property." And then there were people pirating their games. There were people stationing people outside the ballpark, right, to send information to pirate radio stations. That would, well, they're radio stations, but they were pirating the games because there was such a demand for the product. So advertisers were telling them people <coughs> want this product. Um, pirated stations, pirating their, their broadcasts, were telling them people want this product. Um, hmm, maybe we better capitulate here and realize that baseball on the radio is here to stay.
0: But that took 20 years. Right. And it's, it's fascinating, uh, through your research, how much General Mills slash Wheaties, right. how powerful they were how, or how involved they were.
1: They were the number one. Now, there, I don't want to uh, you know, mislead here that they certainly weren't the only ones. Kellogg's was involved, oil companies were involved, and so forth. But General Mills was the biggest sponsor of sports and the biggest sponsor of radio. Um, a lot of you know that Ronald Reagan started his career uh, doing baseball broadcasts. But these were all recreations done in Iowa of Chicago games uh, because General Mills um, sponsored them, right? And the, the power of recreation was not just that um, you well, it, you didn't have to have an announcer at the game. So that meant anybody could recreate any game. right? All you needed was the telegraph beak, So you didn't have to be at the ballpark. Uh, in the 1950s some of you may have heard of Gordon McClendon of the Liberty uh, Network. Uh, he made essentially a national network out of recreating baseball games. Uh, and it was very successful for a short period of time until Major League Baseball decided to essentially allow the broadcast to go to a competitor, the mutual broadcasting system. So um, it's, it's an interesting dynamic that the, the owners really did control the game, but at a certain point the pressure became so, so great from the outside that they had to capitulate, even though many of them were resentful. Uh, a parallel uh, story is um, night baseball, right? The minor leagues showed the owners in the 1930s that night baseball was very profitable. But the owners resisted it because they just believed the game was supposed to be played during the daytime, even though they were really hurting financially. So they could be very obstinate if they wanted to, sometimes in the face of pretty compelling evidence.
0: Once we turn it over to the uh, to the crowd for their Q&A, we can stay in, in this formative year period. But the last uh, topic I want to just bring up before we move to the next period is uh, the 1921 World Series. That, that launches WJZ. Yep. If you could just talk a little bit about, uh, in that time, the, the, the famous call letter, the famous radio stations that were out there with baseball.
1: Well, uh, WJC um, and uh, WEAF was the big uh, RCA station at the time. Um, Springfield had a station. Um, uh, uh, the uh, station in, I'm trying to remember call letters now, but the station in Schenectady, New York, that was General Electric's, Um, They were really dotted over the East Coast. um, And there was one entrepreneur in New England, and one of the reasons that we we speak of Red Sox nation, right, and we really think of, of the Red Sox as the regional team of New England, was because they were one of the first to put together a regional network. And that was because they could do so very cheaply. New England's close together, the line charges were much cheaper. Uh, and the Red Sox were fairly pro-radio because they were bringing people in from the hinterlands to their games. Uh, and so that's an area of the country that, that did, in the East Coast, that did embrace radio, and radio helped create a real regional identity for the Red Sox and the Braves until they moved.
0: Now, w- where the regional networks really started developing, uh, uh, if I remember correctly, mm-hmm. is now we're into that th- th- this age of acceptance, right. 1937 to 1960, so it was after World War II, it right. seems like when they really started
1: to. Yeah. Um, the Red Sox and the Tigers were early adopters of this. But what happened was this: the teams began to realize that they could make the money from building their own networks and not having a broadcaster do it. And the Cardinals are the, the sort of um, poster child for um, how to use – not poster child is not appropriate – but uh, are the model for how to use radio effectively. And they were the classic example of a franchise that had literally half of a country um, that they could draw from. And they expanded rapidly. And they were able to do that because radio transformed dramatically after the Second World War. Because of the Second World War, radio station numbers were confined. They they could not grow. After the Second World War, radio in small-town America grew dramatically. And lots of new stations, thousands of new stations went on the air. At the same time, radio networks were contracting, right, eventually disappearing virtually. Um, That meant you had all these radio stations that needed programming. Well, they could only play so much music. In the summer, baseball was an immediate draw. And so you had these uh, teams building these regional networks. And the the Cardinals became the model for all the new franchises. When the Royals come along they build a huge regional network. When the Twins come along, they build a huge regional network. When the Rockies come along, they build, even much later, they build a huge radio network because radio becomes a way of taking their product and essentially selling it in this wide market, much more than than television did in those early days.
0: And then in the 50s, uh, Liberty Broadcasting System and the Mutual Broadcasting System. How 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 do they come into play?
1: Um, Gordon McClendon was just an entrepreneur. Uh, his he, it helped that he was son of a rich person uh, because that <laughs> gave him the finances. that he needed. But he also was a genius at recreation, and uh, there are numerous uh, quotes of the book um, uh, that refer to him being better at creating the games when he only was working with Teletype. Um, that in fact. His games were better than the ones being done live at the ballpark, and that's because if you're just using teletype or telegraph uh, information, you can create the most vivid experience in the world. Um, that routine ground ball, which a reporter at the game has to report reasonably accurately, right? Because there are other people looking, um, and particularly if it's televised, he could make that a screaming liner. You know, uh, with a diving stop and the most brilliant play of the world. When the uh, telegraph would break down, he could create uh, the most vivid rain delay in the world, or he could create fights in the stands. You know, that took ten minutes, just conveniently as long as the telegraph was down um, to bring under control. Um, there was nobody to check it, right? And so, in many ways, they were more vivid because fiction is sometimes more interesting than fact. And he was pretty good at manipulating both.
0: And uh, I know, speaking of the announcers, I'm sure that's where a bunch of the questions will come from. But So not to get into too much yet, because I'd, I'd rather have them ask the questions, but if you could just talk about Red Barber right. coming uh, from Cincinnati to the <coughs> Dodgers.
1: Yeah. Um, he, he, ha- he was a mature broadcaster. Um, I think what's really interesting about sports broadcasters at the time is that they were announcers. You trained as a staffed announcer. You did everything. You did quiz shows, and so you developed a whole range of skills before you broadcast radio. Um, but and you, you didn't specialize. Of course, he did football. He did you know lots of sports. Very famous for his college football uh, broadcasts. Um, but by the time he came to New York, he was a mature broadcaster, and not to minimize his his contribution because I think it's it's uh, outstanding. He's a very talented person, but he also stepped into exactly the right situation. This was a a city that was really hungry for these broadcasts, and he was welcomed very, very quickly. And I think, um, you know, a lot of people comment on the southern accent in New York, but I think sometimes something that isn't familiar is more interesting than what is familiar. And so that turned out to be maybe just kind of an accident. He came here uh, primarily because of his connections in Cincinnati. Um, You know, McPhail. But uh, he... uh, he became a star immediately and you know, then obviously transitioned to the Yankees. He always loved doing doing radio. Television, he, he had to do television because once television became established, your star announcers had to do television. But he loved doing radio. That was his form. And he loved working by himself as his protege, Finn Scully does. Right.
0: Well, I have other questions, but I'd rather see who wants to lead it off from out here. Uh, anyone want to go first?
2: I have a question. I, I heard a note. He mm-hmm. talked about doing games with He about of the Cubs. Yeah. But he said that in the inception there were like five stations Yes. There were no lights station.
1: Right. that was William Wrigley, and he's a very powerful figure in this area because he was an advertising person, um, Bill Beck Senior, referred to him in one of the meetings as the world's greatest salesman. It's always good to, you know, say nice things about your boss at the, at the <laughs> owners' meetings. Um, but he really believed passionately in the promotional power. He was—if you take him out of the equation, then radio gets delayed in a lot of markets for not for 20 years, but for another five years or so, because he was such a driving force. And his philosophy was he didn't care about the rights. He saw every broadcast as a two-hour commercial for the Chicago Cubs, and as an as a uh, maker of chewing gum and somebody used to pay commercial rates for advertising. He knew what the value of that was, right? If you if you think of it in that in those terms, Uh, and so his philosophy (coughs) was put them on all the stations. You know, the stations have to pay for the announcers; they have to pay the fees. We won't charge them any rights. And it sort of worked. Uh, daytime ratings for Chicago Cubs games at their peak, they would capture half of the listening audience. Now, this is during day, right, when the audience is made up, you know, much more of women and children, right, than the evening hours. But still, half of them are listening because four or five radio stations would be routinely covering games. Exclusivity comes along, but it's a little bit later. It's more in the 1930s. And he was, you know, most markets didn't have that many stations, but oftentimes they'd have two stations. Cincinnati had two stations during the Red Barber days.
2: Did other sports give themselves over to radio broadcasting before Major League Baseball?
1: Um, There was some resistance in, uh, I know, in college football uh, quickly. uh, Professional football wasn't a very big draw there, so college football was the big game. Um, But uh, college football embraced it pretty quickly. Uh, once they began, began to realize, because most college teams are located in rural areas, so the sort of hinterlands model really helps them, and they felt fairly quickly that it wasn't hurting attendance, it was actually really helping attendance. So I'd say college football embraced it fairly quickly and uh, faster than, than, uh, than uh, baseball, except for the World Series. The World Series was on radio almost from the beginning.
2: You said before that a lot of staff members became baseball announcers. Who was the first ex-baseball player to be a radio Broadcaster baseball, um, Jack, Jack, Jack
1: Rainey. Uh, Rainey, yeah. yeah, of Cleveland, Cleveland outfielder, and he was also the first one that got to do a postseason game. that got to do a World Series game because uh, Commissioner Landis was very passionate that there should be no that that the announcer should be impartial. Um, there was a real controversy over uh, Ty Tyson when the um, Tigers were in the World Series. And um, Landis said, we can't allow the local announcer on the air. It has to be somebody who isn't with the local team. And there were like 400,000 names on a position, 4 or 500,000 depending on who you read, that said, we want our local announcer. And what Landis did was he kept them off the network but allowed the local station, the local Detroit station. To do it. But he didn't want any ex-players for that reason. And so there was really sort of a resistance uh, initially with that. But then they came on fairly quickly.
2: You know, you were talking about day games a lot. In, in New York, I know, day games used to start 3 o'clock, 4 p.m., right. which is why you had phrase 5 o'clock. lightning you know, the Yankees? Right. What time did day games start in other cities?
1: Um You know, I, th- I think the... I, 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 I don't want to say that I know that for sure, but I do think they tended to start later, particularly on Fridays. I know that was a tradition in Chicago, um, but yeah, I think they started a little bit later in the day because you could draw some people from work, and you could also sometimes get some kids coming from school. Uh, you know, you had to play around though with the lights because you know, depending on the season, couldn't do that so much early in the season, more later in the summer.
2: The games tended to be so much shorter.
1: Two hours, yeah. yeah.
2: So you mentioned at the beginning that there was a lot of kind of just the owners who really didn't want to embrace radio, and now I'm kind of see, we're seeing a lot of that with the blackout rules, running over TV and whatnot. Right. Like I'm like a Tigers fan, so it's right. easy for me. I don't ever get blacked out unless they're in town. Right, and a lot of friends of mine in the Midwest, they are blacked out from like five different teams in, yeah. like, Iowa or whatever. They don't understand. They can't watch any baseball. Yeah. Yeah. Do you see any similarities? Because it doesn't make sense. Why black them out? You've got to get more fans. Yeah, it's I senior. mean, well, it,
1: it, it's uh, different in this regard. What The reason the blackout rules exist are to protect contracts. They're to protect local rights contracts for the local cable or, or satellite.
2: commercials so over the years? Because MLB TV doesn't run any <coughs> People would be fine if they just aired the local broadcast. On MLB TV, so let me see the local broadcast over the internet. Right, I would imagine that should
1: be okay. Um, might I be, might be some contractual issues, but I know that's at the at the heart of it, what they're trying to do, and they're trying to say, you know, that create that creates an alternative which allows you to get the broadcast without buying the cable mm-hmm. package. Oh, see, okay. so that's the cable company is trying to protect that, and that's a very important part of. Of their revenue pie, so that's what they're paying for there. Okay. So that's where blackout tends to. Be. It's not like the NFL where it's to make sure the stadium sells out or anything like that. It's to protect those local book contracts, which are still important. Um, MLB now, and this is amazing because you know, as I said, they were giving the rights away. MLB now, forty-two uh, percent of their revenues comes from media rights. You know, and obviously, radio is a very small part of that now, um, but television, cable, satellite, uh, and then MLB. Uh, advanced media.
2: I didn't get an opportunity to read the book I'm of the buy tonight. Uh, you mentioned Red Barber. I don't know if you had the opportunity to interview uh, Vince Scully or if there's anything in the book directly related to the transition from Red Barber to Vince Scully. If you can maybe elaborate on that. Yeah, um,
1: I did not get a chance to interview. I, I only was able to interview two announcers. And again, it's not really an announcer book, so I want to make sure of that I did do two chapters on announcers. Uh, The first talks about the formative announcers, the sort of the first eight who established themselves because I felt they were sort of forgotten. I wanted to make sure they were in there. And then I I was able to interview uh, Charlie Steiner and Pat Hughes uh, extensively. And I think uh, what I see is is a kind of a heritage. I see Red Barber and uh, certainly Pat Hughes believes this and is convinced that Red Barber, it sort of all starts with him. And then Vin Scully is the master pupil. And in, in, in many ways, it exceeds you know uh, his uh, his teacher is probably. I think he is a great greater uh, uh, announcer than uh, Red Barber, although Red Barber was, was certainly outstanding. Um, but many of the things that Scully tra- to treasures, he learned from Barber: accuracy in reporting, a journalistic tradition as opposed to a creative tradition, um, incredible skill with language, incredible importance of preparation. Uh, and then just the longevity, the ability to stay with it as long as, you, as, as he has, I think, is, is amazing. Um, but uh, I, th- there's a real lineage between them. And then I think you know people like Charlie Starner uh, grew up listening to Ben Scully, right? And and maybe he heard Red Barber, but he really grew up more in the Scully era. And he grew up, and that's who he wanted to be. You know, and then later he gets to work with them. And, of course, that's a, almost a dream come true. So there's really a lineage. I, I, th- I really think there's like three generations of announcers. And then the fourth generation would be the ones coming in. And there's a real debate, as I think there always is, um, with a mature medium like radio, what will the next generation look like? You know, And the mature established announcers like Steiner or um, uh, Pat Hughes they wonder sometimes whether the younger generation raised on a different media package where television was always the privileged medium are really going to cherish radio the way they did. Because the, the ones that did both, the ones that came up when they were doing radio and television almost invariably love doing radio. They don't hate television, but they know in television the camera leads them. In radio, they're the show, and they really like
2: that. Just a quick follow-up you mentioned about the next generation. Are you an advocate or... A- that possibly this next generation is more uh, stat-oriented as far as Advanced metrics, yeah. having people that are very involved with that and right. communicate that via the radio. Right. Well, I, I think uh, I think
1: statistics are simply you know part of how the game evolves, right? And I think every generation plays the game differently, and, and the game does change and evolve with time. And any good announcer keeps up with that, but they aren't stat heavy. And I think um, you know one of the, one of the quotes is from uh, Ernie Harwell, which is you know too much statistics is the way to kill a good broadcast. That doesn't mean statistics aren't important. It's the medium, you know. The internet's great for it; print's great for that. But you can really bob down a broadcast. But uh, on the other hand, a, a carefully chosen statistic, carefully researched, that the listener hasn't wasn't aware of, can be incredibly valuable. The other thing that they found out that people were listening early on is when they made a mistake on the statistics the early announcers immediately got people, you got that batting average off by two-tenths of a point. <laughs> they knew about it the next day. So they, they knew they had to start to be accurate. That's that's the old days.
2: i heard Scully the other day say that it's all often used, like drunk use as a land. <laughs> right, exactly. Right. Uh, uh, the question I had, that $100,000, was that all for the Charles Stoner no, it was,
1: was uh, Bondi. Uh, well, he was part of the. He was. He was part of his team. Yeah, it was. Right. Yeah, yeah,
2: Horace took over in thirty six. So yeah, yeah. That, that was all. Well, no, no that, been, no, that would
1: have been. No, would have been. That would have been uh, Horace. We, but they they had already signed the band that they were sort of obligated uh, for five years. Not And thirty nine was the end of the band. So they had agreed for five years. So he was. Kind of grandfathered in, if you will, or fathered in, I guess, um, to that to that agreement.
2: And when the Yankees hired Mel Allen from Alabama, right? Did, did they have were they influenced somewhat by Red Barber being so successful with Brooklyn? Um,
1: I don't think so. I think it was just he was the person working in New York then and, and established himself as a staff announcer. He wasn't thought of as an Alabama announcer, or even that really a sports announcer that much. Barber had a much longer track record in baseball uh, and other sports before he came to New York. Allen was much younger. Uh, he just had to be in the right place at the right time. There are pictures of
2: the city squares where hundreds sometimes thousands of people were this uh, field that was playing playbook back right. in Nigeria. Where did that fit in? Was that prior to
1: That was prior, and in fact radio sort of replaced that there was a long-standing tradition of these public crowds during the World Series uh, getting the game. These would be telegraph reports. Uh, and then, then there would be visual displays and so forth. Radio sort of competed with that. And when radio came along and the World Series became common, um, there would now be crowds around speakers, uh, sometimes just set out on a car, or radio stores would stay open on Sunday, where they traditionally didn't, so that people could listen to the World Series games. Um, and that essentially, I won't say completely replaced it, but it supplemented it. Um, that was also tied to newspapers, which would often get the wire service, That it was a promotion that the local newspaper would do as well. One of the most fascinating things I found in those very early days where the newspapers were trying desperately to compete with radio. And at one point, they actually set up a World Series coverage where they had their writers sending out written reports of the game as, as it was happening going to <coughs> their local radio stations, because hundreds of, uh, 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 well not uh, hundreds, but uh, a lot of newspapers around the country owned radio stations and they then read the report, they had a staff announcer read the written report verbatim. They were trying to compete with the radio broadcast. Um, not quite as you know (laughs) fast just you know a little bit slower but they were trying to do it and then Landis gave the rights exclusively to the radio people the next year and that ended that when the um,
2: three New York teams agreed not to broadcast baseball I've heard that uh, when Larry McPhail took over the Dodgers in 38, he blew that out of the water and yeah. said, look, I wasn't party to this agreement. I think you guys are nuts. Right. Broadcasting is going to attract fans and bring them in. I'm not going to do it. You do what you like. And then and, the other two and teams, he teams basically Barbara. had to come along and, or be left in the dust. Yeah, well,
1: I mean, it, it, it also corresponded with that was the end of the agreement, right? And so he happens to show up just at that time. So, what would have happened if it had been a year earlier? I don't know because I, we're not talking about a firm contract. We're really talking more about a gentleman's agreement. I think it
2: helped to the Dodgers are getting pretty good. Yeah,
1: years yeah. Of um, one of the things that always helps is a good team. And and in, and <laughs> some of the most interesting stuff that the announcers would tell me is what happens when it's August and your team is twenty games out and nothing matters anymore, and you're in a four hour game with you know fifty seven walks on each side. Uh, they talk about now there's the challenge That'll you know when it's a great game it's no challenge at all it's easy to call it but those are the challenging times
2: uh,
1: you know I really uh, I really didn't get into that you know I, I you know you have to sort of draw a frame around it and You know, this this seemed exhausting enough, just doing this, but I really uh, didn't do it. The minor leagues did broadcast uh, substantially, and in many ways they were more aggressive, kind of like they were with lighting in the 1930s. Uh, And General Mills was very happily sponsoring minor league broadcasts across the country. And uh, so there there definitely was substantial broadcasting of minor league games. Um, The one thing that limited the smaller markets is there weren't that many small market radio stations in the 1930s. Uh, radio stations were really confined to medium-sized cities and larger cities. That weren't very many small ones, so really small markets, <coughs> did not. But major, you know, AAA teams and so forth. They, they, most of them would have their name Pacific Coast League and so forth was uh, was widely broadcast. So yeah, it was substantial. Uh, Negro leagues, I don't know very much about. I do know I don't think there was there was much happening there. I do know that the Dodgers did have a network of stations, many of them in the South uh, after 1947. Uh, they had an extensive network that carried Dodgers games because they had uh, African-American uh, players. And there were some African-American radio stations uh, you know, at that time, and so they did capitalize that on a little bit. And they started to become a little more of a national team uh, at that point. But that was very unusual.
2: This is more of a broadcasting history question. And a little bit, I know, about the beginnings of radio and television. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you mentioned it Today, I feel like you always read about New York, Chicago, and Schenectady. And yeah. I yeah. Think, why Schenectady? <laughs> Schenectady? <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> since Caesar right saying it, or is he, yeah. The first
1: television drama was done in Schenectady, yeah. New York, in why 1927, The Queen's Messenger, and it <laughs> consisted of a close-up of one person's face because that's all you could make out on these early television sets. Uh, like Twelve lines. Two letters, that. GE. Yeah. Oh, General exactly, electric. They were pioneers in broadcasting in terms of stations, in terms of technology, and so forth. Mm-hmm. And that's where, the, that's where the headquarters were. So that's exactly why Scudectomy pops up. Yeah. You suggested that a lot of um, what had to do with
2: getting baseball on radio was an advertising, which makes lots of sense. But um, I was also wondering whether there was a sense of how much baseball... As opposed to other sports, lends itself to being on the radio. I mean, there's a, obviously right. the timing lines up well. Right. Um, but I've, I've listened to radio broadcasts of basketball games. It's not ideal. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Um, In desperation, you might do that, but yeah, it's really yeah. not ideal. Right, right. So I was wondering if there was a sense of how it, it's it's a yeah. Kind of and many,
1: many folks have commented on this, announcers comment on you know, it regularly, but it's absolutely true. Um, the game is better suited um, to radio, and even the gaps in the game really allow the development of the announcers, the storyteller. And I think this is where players emerge as being actually kind of very important, the role of the color analyst, which really wasn't there initially, right? It was just one announcer, you know. And, and, and then when you get to World Series coverage, you start to have multiple voices, and then that starts to become the norm in regular season coverage. Uh, mostly just to control costs. But players start to really add a lot. And then some of the players become very skilled play, play-by-play play announcers as well. Um, but, yeah, it really is a great radio sport, probably much more than, than, than any sport, and certainly basketball. The announcers all say, though, that in terms of ease of coverage, they love basketball, they love hockey. I mean, once you get it down, right, for us it would be intimidating, right, but once you get it down, it is... Uh, a fast-paced game, you never have dead time, you never have to worry about things. Something is always happening. All you have to do is call what's in front of you, and and game's over, right? And you're and you're into wrap-up. Um, baseball's almost never like that. They're going to be downstream. <coughs> and the uh, I know one thing Pat's used really emphasizes is, and, of course, he had a tremendous uh, relationship with Ron Santo. They were just a perfect uh, match. Um, but he really talks about how important that is. You know, he you talks... He's stretching it a bit, but it's almost like a, a marriage. You really have to work together. Uh, and, boy, if, if you don't have harmony there, it, it, it makes for some long broadcasts. Well,
2: uh, at the time, the uh, Supreme Court determined that baseball was not engaged in interstate commerce. I believe that was 1922. Yeah. So you say by that time baseball had already made some money from World Series No,
1: no. In fact, they made no money from the World Series. This was all being done as a promotion or public service. Landis saw the World Series, uh, and and the networks saw the World Series as public service. This is what's so, you know, how this culture has been transformed, right? You would give away World Series rights. Landis gave away the World Series rights. Um, The networks, right? The networks did not want to go to pay, and they did not want to buy exclusive rights. Right? Because they really believe that things like the World Series, right, were a public service and as many people should hear this as possible, right? Uh, ultimately Ford Motor Company, again, an advertiser, comes to Landis in the middle of the Great Depression, nineteen thirty four and says, We'll give you hundred thousand dollars. I know that doesn't sound like a lot of money now, but it was a lot <laughs> of money then, right? And Landis finally capitulates after a lot of having him off. You know, So there, there were pressures coming from advertisers to gain sponsorship. They wanted that sponsorship. Uh, and in fact, Landis resisted and the networks resisted uh, for a very, very long time. Uh, even though they certainly could uh, based on their, on their uh, rights. I
2: think what the... Um uh, just th- thinking about other sports on the radio, that the, the Joe Lewis and Mack Schnellen fights are always talked about as being a pivotal yeah. moment um, in broadcast history and the important place of radio in our culture. Yeah. Um, did the success of those broadcasts influence the baseball owners
1: um, No, th- 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 there's, there's, two, there's two issues. They did concerning the World Series, right? Because the other huge draw that sold the medium of radio uh, and drew huge acclaim nationally were heavyweight fights, right? And there are numerous ones in the early 1920s, usually involving Jack Dempsey, right, um, that were mega events. And they sold the medium of radio. Because when we're talking about the 1920s, we're talking about um, 2 3% of the population having radio. Radio was a public medium. You listened to it at a bar, You listen to it around the Cracker Barrel, right, in the general store. Um, You know, out in front of the newspaper office, there would be a radio. It wasn't an in-home medium. And so those fights, along with the World Series, but that's where they saw it. They saw World Series as their once-a-year event, right, and that was parallel to heavyweight boxing. Regular season broadcasts were a totally different matter. And, of course, that's where most of their revenue was coming from, because they actually had to share a lot of the World Series revenue with the players. They could keep a lot more (laughs) of The, the regular season draft. Uh, what the advertising in these early games
2: Do they have exclusive sponsors or
1: did they have many sponsors? It tended to be exclusive sponsors. Uh, so, for example, you would have these four or five different broadcasts in Chicago. They'd all have different sponsors, but it would be one sponsor for the whole thing. And General Mills would write instructions. General Mills actually trained announcers. They had workshops, annual conventions for announcers to train them how to do this. And part of it was how to sell Wheaties 57 different ways and not be <laughs> saying the same thing over and over again. Right? And the commercialism came along gradually. right? Um, there were complaints when the Detroit Tiger broadcast, uh, which for a long time had been sponsored by Mobile Oil, and the only, it was like a PBS show, Um Today's Tiger game is brought to you by mobile oil. Today's Tiger game has been brought to you by mobile oil. I've just given you the commercial con- content of a, of a two-hour broadcast, right? Um, that obviously changed, right? Uh, and the, the commercial and then gradually the drop-ins uh, became more common. But it was much less commercial. The breaks were much shorter and the number of references during the game and even like Charlie Steiner uh, and Fat Hughes talk about needing to cram more into the thimble, they're just forced to do more and more drop-ins because the rights fees are so expensive. They can't sustain it just with spot advertising. They have to have everything has to be sponsored by something, right? You know, he paints the corner with a you know a fastball, and uh, next time you need some painting. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned the the talent behind
0: the microphone. You
2: mentioned the business behind the. Broadcasting. What about technology? Besides a mic in front of a broadcaster, what technology changes from, what obviously, uh, let's say, from the '30s to the '60s,
1: opposed right. to the '20s, which are or very basic. Yeah. Well, I mean, parts <coughs> of the technology are really old. I, I want, it's, it's amazing to me that the same uh, radio that was used to listen to Graham McNamee in the 1923 World Series could pick up transmissions, AM radio transmissions in New York right today so that part of the technology is actually very very old Um, the thing that did change was the networking Uh, the early games until about 1946 you get to after World War II virtually all road games except extremely important games like the World Series or something like that were recreations they were all done from telegraph transmissions recreated by an announcer and that was based primarily on two expenses the cost of travel and most importantly, the AT and T line charges, because AT and T had a monopoly on long distance. Once that starts to break down, right, and AT and T's rates become more reasonable, and then you start to get satellite. Then suddenly, all games become live broadcast. What important, the
2: sound the game, because as the stadium got, at in the sixties and seventies, definitely the age of 90's, louder. Yeah. Where there and are there mics placed, or <coughs> the listener, as far as did that start? maybe as in the '40s, or
1: just definitely in the more modern times. That kind of yeah, like I I, do not, I, I under, don't dwell on that too much, but no, I don't think that, you know they, they add some additional field mics, but basically that's really still just kind of background. And there's always the danger with you know too many microphones that you get, let's say, unwanted comments uh, <laughs> from the, from the <laughs> fans, and so uh, they have to be fairly judicious in that. So th- they added pretty early. I mean, we're talking about 1920s. They were adding a field mic so that you would have. One of, the, one of the things that was true about the early microphones is they had to be very, very careful. One of the early announcers had been a public address announcer, the old megaphone public address announcer. And he actually, the first time he did a radio broadcast, he tried to do it like the megaphone, and he blew out the transmitter. You know, right? <laughs> so some of those problems went away. But in fact, the technology of your, your basic field mic or two, and the announcer mic, you know, obviously moving the headsets at a certain point. Um, that pretty much changed. And, of course, Red Barber's uh, technological contribution was the, um, the egg timer, right? He brought an egg timer in, and he was very vehement about this. He would flip it over, right? And when the sands had gone through the hourglass, it reminded him to announce the score of the game. Because in radio, people are always tuning in and tuning out. And every few minutes, you want to make sure you announce the score of the game because that's the one question everybody who tunes in is asking. And, you, and he had a, his little low tech, right? Um, so it's, it's amazing how little the technology has changed, I think. Um, you know Pat Hughes will say, Yes, I do have, we obviously have all of that, we have the internet there and so forth, but I tend to have my associate producers feed that information to me. I don't want to be distracted from it. He says some of his younger colleagues. You know, can be using the phone and the and the laptop and gathering information while they're doing the game. He can't imagine how he could possibly. When
2: possible. Beer come as
1: a sponsor. Um, beer starts <coughs> to pick up uh, steam after the Second World War, because of the sort of legacy of Prohibition. There were beer sponsors uh, in Chicago, for example, uh, in the 1930s. So it wasn't, but they were not the dominant sponsors. The dominant sponsors were cereals. And again, these were day games, right? So, you know, sponsoring beer during daytime, a little different than sponsoring. Once the games start to move to the evening after the Second World War, beer becomes the major sponsor. So by 1950, it's the number one sponsor. And cigarettes, you know. (laughs) I mean, some Uh, people have forgotten that that actually happened.
2: What was the relationship of... So when we see the players' relationship with the media today is, I would imagine, incredibly different. So when, when it was first starting, when when radio was first starting being news, was were the players involved at all with that broadcast, or was that just something that happened separate from them? No, and the no, and
1: and and you know, th- 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 we're we're talking about you know, World Series is different. The, by the, in the late twenties, early thirties, they're they're having post game and you know, right. Graham McNamee's going down and interviewing Jimmy Fox, you know, at the end of the World Series. So. They're starting to do those kinds of things. But it was such a small part that the papers were everything then. So your relationship with the papers were important and the the print press. Radio was really just a secondary kind of thing. So players weren't terribly involved. And then a few players started catching on as announcers, and I think that started to become pretty standard by the 1950s. I'm kind of familiar with TV
2: radio. I really don't know much about radio. How popular was Facebook on the radio in past years? Right. Has it changed radically with television coming into existence and is it popular today?
1: Yeah. Um, well, I mean, it, it, as I say, at, at its height, you could talk about you know half of the daytime radio audience in Chicago listening to, uh, to Cubs games, and, and opening day they would get substantial ratings. Now, uh, in major markets, opening day might get uh, 12% of the audience, of the radio, the listening audience. That's that's 12% of the population. That's people listening to radio, which is a very substantial rating when you're talking about the kind of uh, radio world we're in now in New York. You know, with dozens of radio stations, that's a pretty big chunk of pie. It sort of settles down, and the thing that's true about radio and television as well in this very competitive uh, environment where there's so many media opportunities, so many places, so many things one can do with your media time, right? The team is not winning. The ratings tank very, very quickly. And, you know, like the Houston Astros, not now, <laughs> but in like two years ago, I think we're getting a zero rating, right? Now, that doesn't mean no one was watching, right? But not enough people were watching to show up in the ratings book, right? Um, yeah, and that's that's happened a couple of times. Uh, although that was more the expos than, than anyone else, but yeah, in the same respect, from radio stations' point of view, ra- yeah. baseball is still a valuable commodity, even though the actual numbers aren't as high as they would like. Certainly not as high as they were historically because of all the competition. That's true of everything, right? Uh, you know, every medium. State of the Union addresses—you know—used to be watched by everybody. Now they're not because there's lots of other things to watch. Um, but the radio stations still bid big vigorously and pay uh, near record or record rights fees. Uh, WBBM finally lured the Cubs away from WGN, which had only had it for you know fifty years, sixty years, you no, know, probably seventy-five years. Um, why? Because radio has a built-in audience and baseball has a built-in audience, right? And it is the summer game, right? And it becomes something that people, you know, that little button on your on your radio dial, in your car radio, we still use those things, right? And that becomes one of the buttons that if you're a baseball fan, you push, right? You have that programmed in. And it's a secondary medium, right? There's no doubt about that. It's a secondary medium. We too do, do tend to prefer to watch the game most of the time, but there are lots of opportunities, there are lots of times where that's not possible. And, you know, I, I mean, uh, Charlie Steiner, particularly living in Los Angeles, says, Who's this audience? It's somebody in a car, right? He, he presumes most of the people listening to his game are driving somewhere.
0: This is going to be, uh, from t- for t- due to time constraints, this will be the last question. Thank
2: okay. you. I, I have a question about Red Bob, when he was with Cincinnati. Mm-hmm. When he was there, there was a young guy who was either the PR guy or the traveling secretary for the team, whose name was James Reston. And young barber became the, the iconic announcer yeah. in decades. And James Reston became the chief columnist for the New York Times and mm-hmm. won multiple Pulitzer Prizes. Sure. And I was wondering if you came across anything about why Cincinnati was so astute that it hired at least two people <coughs> who went on to be great journalists. <laughs>
1: I, I can't give you an answer. <laughs> I really uh, that I don't know. It might just be coincidence, but uh, I don't think there was anything, anything in the um, in the Ohio River that was, you know, giving people a lot of genius capacity. But uh, can't help you with that one. Sorry.
0: Well, Jim led us in a great discussion, and and he got it back from this crowd with uh, some tremendous questions. Great, great so thank questions. questions. Thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. And just for those listening, wherever you may be, in the car or wherever, uh, Crack of the Bat, A History of Baseball on the Radio, published by the University of Nebraska Press, written by James Walker. Thank Thank you.